And the whole city gathered together at the door. And then Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon Peter and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I might preach there also, because for this reason I have come forth. And he was preaching in the synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Just push pause right there. Uh, We've been discussing Mark's biography of the life of Jesus now for a handful of weeks. It's really what we commonly refer to as Mark's gospel, but really it's Mark's account of Jesus' gospel of the good news, the good announcement. Remember, the word gospel was not about ordinary information. It was about extraordinary information. It was reserved to talk about the title, a term gospel was reserved to talk about life-altering, earth-shattering news. Author Timothy Keller in his book uh, called Jesus the King, he said it this way. He says, a gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your life status forever. There's this enormous difference between news and advice, especially gospel news. For me, I want to embrace the good news that is the message of Jesus. Not just try to look at a Bible and then adhere to good advice that I find inside of it. There's a huge difference between the two of those. And for me, sometimes I have to stop myself and step back to kind of reassess and look to make sure that I'm not making the gospel, this great proclamation, an awesome announcement of what God has done for me, that I'm not making it into something that it's not. Because something inside of me seems naturally determined at times to turn the gospel, the message of good news, the good announcement, I turn it instead into just good advice. I can turn it into requirement rather than news and announcement about something that's been done in the past and accomplished for me that it would change my life status forever. And I don't know that it's rooted in pride that I want to think that I can earn and so I turn the news into requirements or if it's rooted in insecurity that I know that I can't earn it and it makes me uncomfortable that God would be so gracious to me. But I have to stop and remember this is a gospel. And you remember that the gospel, this life-changing, world-shaping news, if that's true, then the essence of Christianity is essentially that. The whole essence of Christianity is news, whereas every other major religion is essentially just advice or requirement, things that you have to do to reach and please God, whereas Christianity is so very different from that. My job is to believe and receive the good news of what Jesus has done on my behalf. And what we talked about last time I was here was the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because if you look in chapter 1, in verse 14 and 15, that's what it talks about. It says, now Jesus went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember, gospel, not just a churchy, religious word. Gospel was an ancient political term that reached as far back as the Old Testament itself and was always used to speak of a king and a kingdom. For Jesus, gospel and kingdom were two inseparable truths that were so interwoven together. You see, Jesus came to take back creation and to set up his rightful kingdom again. God's goal is not merely for for me or for you just to be forgiven. It's redemption and restoration of all of creation for me and for the world, which means that the, the message of the kingdom of Jesus is not, and sometimes we oversimplify it, and I think we sell people a, a false bill of goods the, the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, is not that life will be easy today. It's, like, it's that life will be made right again in the future. It's not always that life will be easy today in choosing to allow Jesus to be king of your life and receiving him and following him. It's that the promise of the kingdom is that one day all things will be made right again. Not always easy today, but right again is the promise of the kingdom. It's the promise of our future. You remember the guy who wrote this, his name's Mark. We know from church history and even from the Bible itself, we know some information about him, including the fact from the book of Acts that he's a key player in the book of Acts, but he's not really prominent in the gospel himself. He was a young guy who really is telling Peter's version of the story, which is why you may have noticed, 
even in what we just read a moment ago, it mentions specifically that Peter was present. In all of these stories, it, it will mention again and again in Mark's gospel, and Peter or Cephas was there. And he's the one, Peter was, that Mark will later travel with in the book of Acts. And as he hears Peter teach these things, he begins to dictate them. Now, church history also tells us that uh, many believe that the home that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper in was Mark's family home. And that Mark's family were personal friends of Jesus. And in fact, in Acts 12, when they're praying in Jerusalem for Peter to be released from jail, many church uh, traditions tell us that that was actually in John Mark's family's home. So they were a part of this early movement as followers of Jesus. And so Mark introduces us then to the early moments in Jesus' ministry. And in chapter one, what Mark tells us, after laying out his insipid, which I won't review this week, but we will again, I'm sure in the future, he then jumps into a day in the life of Jesus where there's the baptism of Jesus, there's the temptation, and then he gives a 24-hour block of time to show you what Jesus' daily life looked like. And in that 24-hour period of time, it starts with Jesus going out in verse 17, and he calls disciples, and they drop everything, and they follow him. And then it, it talks about him going into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's blowing people away with the way that he taught. And then he, he's met with a demon there in the synagogue gathering, and he drives the demon out of the man. And then it says that he then travels home with Peter to his mother-in-law's house, and he heals his mother-in-law of a simple fever. And I think there might be something there that we'd miss uh, that takes place in that little moment. Because Jesus has this super flashy start. The day in the life of Jesus is like shock and awe for sure, where his first engagement with the scriptures leaves everyone amazed. His first engagement with the demon leaves everyone amazed because the demon actually cries out and, and makes it clear that hell itself knows who Jesus is and even shows that hell itself is afraid of Jesus' authority. And then he cries out and convulses and comes out of the man and flees after telling the, the whole audience that was there that we know who you are. And then from those climactic, amazing moments that are like jaw-dropping, then his first engagement with human brokenness, with sin and sickness, is that he goes and just heals Peter's mother-in-law of what we would look at as just a common fever. It almost feels anticlimactic. For us as we read it, especially if you did your homework, like we'd mentioned a couple weeks ago and read through Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel accounts for more, it, it records more of Jesus' miracles than any of the other gospel accounts because Mark seems intent on showing us the amazing authority and power that Jesus had. So the next time we're together, we'll talk about Jesus healing a man of leprosy. This was this death sentence of a disease. So from Jesus, you know, amazing people to then a common fever, like it just, it seems anticlimactic because things like leprosy, Jesus will do incredible miracles, like even raise someone from the dead in Mark's gospel. He's going to heal people who, who are lame and have been unable to walk for years and years, or maybe even their whole life. He'll feed 5,000 people from someone's lunch. He's going to walk on the sea. He'll calm the storm. He does incredible miracles, but this first one almost seems anticlimactic to us. Like why mention it? But Mark has a reason for mentioning it because I think that first century audience thought very differently than we do of things that we think of as just a common fever. In fact, there's an old rabbinic tradition that was alive in Jesus' time, and I'll read it to you, that's recorded for us in the Talmud, and here's what it says. It says, greater is the miracle performed for the sick person than the miracle that was performed for Henael, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them in Daniel's story as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were rescued from a fiery furnace. As the miracle for the three of them, they were rescued from the fire of a layman, and anyone is capable of extinguishing a fire. And that fire attacked a sick person with a fever is the fire of heaven. Who can extinguish that kind of fire? The old rabbinic tradition was, uh, the, the miracle in Daniel is incredible, but only heaven itself can heal someone's body physically, especially of a fever. And now, it was a dangerous thing, especially in antiquity, to have a fever because it typically showed that there was a, an infection that was present, and without antibiotics to fight against it, that infection could take over someone's body and quickly cripple them or even take their life. And so in antiquity, they'd look and say, of all the things that, that someone could do, this is not something that we know how to remedy. Heaven itself can only do this. And so for it to start with just a simple fever is a statement to a first century audience that heaven itself has come and heaven's authority is here because the king of heaven himself can do this. The king of heaven, the authority of heaven, 
alone can heal someone of something that we look at as simple, but they looked at as so complex that only heaven itself could remedy it. And so it's showing Mark's first century audience that Jesus is the king of heaven. And, and I love the response then of, we read it a couple weeks ago of Peter's mother-in-law where she's healed. And so she gets up and begins to serve. And, and I love the rhythm here of they're, they're with Jesus in the synagogue. They bring Jesus into the home. There's lots of things to chew on there that, that for a church and for us as Jesus people, we ought not to think of our faith as being lived out just here. We gather for the purpose of effectively scattering. That's the rhythm of a healthy church. As we gather to, for me, my job is to equip saints for the work of the ministry. Your job is you are the ministers, which means that the success of our church is not so much based on what's said, sung, or done here. The success of our church, the true success, is based on what you do when you leave here because you're the minister that God has entrusted the ministry to. Because you're the one that God is entrusting that you would bring Jesus with you into your living room like they did in this situation. To bring him into a situation with someone who had dire need and to bring Jesus hope and peace and healing and life into that person's life. That's the goal of, of every follower of Jesus. Not just to have their relationship with him and exist in the, in the sacred place, but exist for the remainder of the week in every place. Because to gather and scatter is the rhythm of a healthy church. So I'm telling you all this because I want you to see that Jesus spends his day, the 24-hour day, doing and accomplishing a lot. In fact, it finishes with what we read today, where the entire village of Capernaum comes to be ministered to by Jesus. The whole village is now heard like, wow, he's got power to heal. And, and it was already shaken up by the things that he taught. And then watching these guys leave their father's business and follow him with loyalty. All in a day, it's shaking this little village of Capernaum up so that the whole village gathers. It's this climactic moment, and we haven't even finished a 24-hour period of time. It's the end of the evening. But the way that that 24-hour period of time finishes is what's so peculiar to me. Again, look at what it says. After everyone gathers, now in the morning, verse 35, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And keep reading. And, and Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to him, let's go into the next towns. Okay, there's three things I'd like to chew on you or chew on with you. I don't, yeah. Uh, there's three things. Wow. Oh, I can blame it on the, I lost an hour of sleep last night. Yeah, there's, there's three things, uh, well, there's three things actually I'd planned on talking with you. And then this morning I, I did get up early and as I started going over my notes, I realized there's, there's something here that I think we ought to slow down and consider. So we're only gonna hit two of the three today. But the first is why Jesus prayed, because this is a bizarre concept. So why does Jesus pray? But then the other question that I'd like to ask and answer with you is, why did Jesus say no? Because for Jesus to say, let's go to the next village was saying no to the legitimate needs. Remember the whole village is gathering that night, bringing their sick, no one would have gone home at the end of that evening and been like, wow, what a day. Like they, no, they just in, experienced incredible power. They would have gone out and found any other loved one they had who was sick and dragged them back saying, we got to find this guy again, this new rabbi. And first thing in the morning, your life's going to be changed. And for Jesus to say, let's go, was saying no to very real legitimate needs. And I think that's worth us wrestling through a little bit. But the other question I was going to ask and answer with you is, is why we should pray, because I think to consider why Jesus prayed would naturally lead us to that thought for ourselves, but I don't think we'll have time to get there, so you're welcome. We'll cut this a little bit short today. Um, but first, why Jesus would pray. Healing from, from evening until late at night, up early the next morning, getting away seemingly to receive orders from headquarters. He's, he's waiting on his father. And it's funny because in the story, it seemingly wasn't easy for the disciples to even find Jesus because he removed himself to some solitary place. But for centuries, it's even more difficult for us as Jesus followers to even understand the reason why he withdrew to play. Not pray, not, not just the where he went, but we're wondering, well, why would he do this? Because it is a bit confusing. If Jesus is God, then who's he talking to? And if he's God, then what does he need help with? Why is Jesus getting away to do this? In the four biographies of the life of Jesus that are recorded for us in the scriptures, the disciples don't ask Jesus at the, in his life and ministries, they travel with him. They don't ask him, hey, teach us how to do your miracles or teach us how to cast out demons like you do or, or teach us how to teach like you do with power and with authority. But they do go to him and ask him, 
teach us to pray like you do. In Luke 11, it's recorded that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. I think they heard him speak and teach, and and they saw him, they watched him touch and heal people and set them free, and they believed the source of that divine power came from what Jesus did as a practice, which was he withdrew to spend time with his father. But why would he do that? I mean, if Jesus is God, then, then why does Christ need to pray? And theologically speaking, I think we could at least come up with a handful of reasons why Jesus would get away alone to listen and pray. And, and one of them is because of what the prophets would say of him. It was something that they had forecasted. In Isaiah, which is, we're only in the first chapter, I think we've referenced Isaiah four different times, pointing to these moments that Mark is highlighting for us are direct fulfillment of prophecies that Isaiah the prophet had written about Christ. And one of them is this moment, Isaiah chapter 50, verses four and five. Here's what it says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who's weary. He has awakened me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. The idea is that he would shift direction, that he would yield to the way that the Father would direct him. One of the reasons that Jesus would do this is because it's something that the prophets had foretold, but, but he's doing this also as an example, I think, for us as his followers. That he showed us what we ought to do, that we ought to be in a rhythm of getting away to listen and to pray and to spend time with the Father. But another thing to consider, theologically speaking, is that The nature of the Trinity allows for communication between its members. As God the Son, Jesus could pray and interact with God the Father. Remember in Genesis, it it begins a, a statement by saying, let us make man in our image. God speaking within the triune nature that exists in our unique God, having, in a sense, a dialogue and communication within that unique triune nature, saying, let us do this, make him in our image. Okay, even this, the, the incarnation is, is another reason why Jesus would do this. The incarnation tells us that, that God came and that Jesus consisted of both a divine and a human nature simultaneously. And from Jesus' human nature, it's perfectly natural for Jesus to pray. We could even think of it, dare we say, as something that Jesus did out of necessity. Theologians refer to it as uh, the hypostatic union. It's the reality of two coexisting natures within the person of Jesus, that Jesus somehow remained fully God And yet he became completely a man, taking on himself complete humanity, except for he didn't take on our sinful fallen nature because he's not a son of Adam. He's the new Adam without a sinful nature. And he lived then, Jesus did, his life as a true man, depending upon the Father day by day. In Philippians 2, it says it beautifully. It says, you must have the same mind that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Another translation says, but he laid aside his his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. Another translation says he made himself of no no reputation. It means he emptied himself of his privileges. He set aside almost as if he slid them into his pocket, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. He chose not to access those things, the unique power of God, in order to take on the full human experience. I mean, think of what the biographies of Jesus tell us about him. In Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. When you tease that thought out, it actually is a very strange idea that it implies that if he grew in wisdom, that that it implies that at some point in time in Jesus' early life, that God among us somehow knew less than you would come to know through his life experience. There's a wild thought even of, well, did Jesus know and understand intuitively both who he was and what his purpose was? Was he just born with that understanding? Or is that something he began to understand at points in time? 
Was it the time of his temptation that all of a sudden it dawned on him the true weight of responsibility of of who he was and what he had come to do? Or or was it before that? Was it at the time of his baptism? Or was it still before that? Was it the time as a young boy that he went into the temple and, and stayed behind his family when they departed hearing from the scriptures and going back and forth with them? Or was it even before that? What is it him as a young boy and, and, and maybe he's five and six and his mom is sitting with him as he's eating his dinner, trying to get him to eat it and telling him, you'll never believe your story. An angel visited me long before you were ever born. Or is it before that? Did he just grow up with this unique, unbroken, divine connection within the triune Godhead? There's so much of this that's a mystery to us that God was in the flesh among us and yet seemingly, quote unquote, arrived as a normal guy where he'd be asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm because he's exhausted. That God among us would say that he doesn't know the day or the hour that he'll return, that he's not speaking in hyperbole when he says, I don't know these things. That when we find Jesus sitting with his disciples eating and drinking, he's not just trying to throw them off the scent and appear normal, but it's because he needed those things in order for him to have the sustenance and the strength that he needed to do what God had called him, the Father had called him to do. One theologian, he said it this way, and I liked it. He said, the miracle of the incarnation is that this one person became everything we are without ceasing to be everything he is. And admittedly, I struggle and fall short of of fully understanding the idea of these two natures, not dueling natures, but these two natures that existed within Jesus all at the same time. It's a mystery to us. What's mysterious to us as well is that Jesus said this about what he did and how he accomplished it. In John's gospel, it says, I live by the power of the living father who sent me. In John 10, he said, the very works that I do, I do by the power of my father. In John 5, he said it this way, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but the will of the father who sent me. It's hard for us to process, well, what all does this look like? I think we'd be wrong in assuming that Jesus is kind of like Achilles in Greek mythology, where Achilles is is the person who lost his strength and power because what was human about him overpowered what was divine about him. I don't think we should picture that, and I don't think we should picture Clark Kent like running in and out of uh, the phone booth emerging as Superman, that Jesus would just flash between two identities where he's normal when he's hungry and tired and then he's, he's got his Superman cape going when he'd, he'd jump out and stand on the water of the sea and calm the storm. I don't think it's that way at all. Jesus' miracles were not accomplished by him switching back, back and forth between these two, these two different natures because these two parallel truths are kind of like two railway tracks that the life of God among us rode upon, a divine and a human nature. And if that's true, there's just two things that I'd like for you to chew on. Two things I just want to point out to you about this before we move on to the next thought. And and that's that you've probably noticed as you've read through the four accounts of the life of Jesus, that this was Jesus' practice. That this was Jesus' practice to pray, not a one-time thing. It's something that we're introduced to here and that seems to throw his newfound friends, the disciples, off where they can't understand why he's doing it, but it's something that we'll see him do again and again. Luke 5 says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 22 says, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And the next thing he does in that story in Luke 22 is he instructs the disciples to pray as well. And then he himself begins to pray. That was the thing that was his custom withdrawing to do that. This was his typical move, his pattern, or as one translation puts it, this was the habit of Jesus to pray. This was his practice. And that practice didn't cease when Jesus' life got more busy. Even in this first chapter of Mark, it's an example of it, that when life got busy, Jesus seemed even more determined to break away, to be alone, to be quiet, and to pray and commune with the Father. Super simple reminder. But I'll just tell you, my own life was a great reminder this week. Because for me, my life pace has picked up exponentially and shifting into this role uh, here at the church. And and there's lots of wonderful things happening here at the church, but that also picks up my pace of life exponentially. And so for me to have this reminder about the more busy you become, the more intentional you need to be about withdrawing to do this was a great reminder for me that, that I need to safeguard that rhythm in my life. And Maybe it's a good reminder for you. 
But the other thing I'd want to remind you while looking at this idea of Jesus getting alone to pray is I just want to remind you that Jesus does this at the end of his story in Gethsemane. And when he went away and did it, he requested two or three friends to join him when he prayed. Think about Gethsemane for a minute. Jesus entered that garden not to hide from death, but to prepare himself for it. And he would do that by praying. That's what he got away to do. And early in the gospel records, where we're finding ourselves at the beginning of Mark's gospel, it's, it's when we see flashes of Jesus' deity bursting through his humanity, that's what amazes us. But by the time we near the gospel's end, we find the one that we've begun to see as we've read through the gospel as God among us, all of a sudden we see him collapsed on the floor and soaking the pathways of Gethsemane with his own tears. And it's no longer the shock and surprise of Jesus' deity that, that causes us to turn our heads and gaze and wonder. Instead, it's the frailty of Jesus' humanity that, that leaves us so shocked and awestruck at the end of the story. Gethsemane means to press. It's two Hebrew words squished together, to press. And it's the place where Jesus went to be crushed, to be pressed. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. The, the Mount of Olives, they had all these olive groves there, and they would bring the olives to the place of crushing, the place of pressing, where three times they were pressed to extract from them olive oil that could be used for many different purposes. And three times Jesus there at the place called the place of crushing, the place of pressing Gethsemane, Jesus would be crushed. Three times Jesus would cry out and say, Father, stop if there's any other way. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 53, verse 5, would say it this way, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In that moment, Jesus is so sorrowful that he thought he'd die of sorrow. He's so overwhelmed that he crumbles to the floor. He's so human that he needed the presence of friends. So crushed, he begged the Father to stop it. Listen, if you've ever been frustrated and questioned God's connections to your feelings or, or your pressures or your pains, then hear me say that our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels, dramatically changes because of that garden that Jesus would enter at the end of his life, Gethsemane. Gethsemane takes the God that we need to be big enough to hold the universe in the span of his hand as the prophets tell us he can. It takes that God so big, so capable, and makes him so small, so gentle, that he's small enough to place his arm around us when we too are pressed and crushed and suffer and to gently whisper to us, I understand. From the God we need so big and vast, that place that Jesus will enter to pray and this experience of, of weakness, the weakness of humanity, will allow him to meet us in our moment of pressing, of crushing, of pressure, and place an arm around us and gently whisper, I know. God joins us on our knees in the dust of Gethsemane, the place of pressure of crushing. And that's when we can see in God tears on his cheeks. That's when we can hear in God a tremble in his voice. That's where he whispers in that gentle voice, I know. You see, every other religion is just trying to get a distant God to notice us, but not the gospel of Jesus. God came so near he suffered for you, but he is still so near that he suffers with you still today. Remember in that garden, Jesus will pray three times that the father would create another way. Take this cup from me, cup in the Old Testament, it was always imagery of judgment and wrath. Take this judgment. Is there another way? Nevertheless, Jesus would pray, not my will, yours be done. Listen, like you, Jesus had prayers that were not answered in the way or in the time that he had hoped for. Jesus was not just honest with his father in that moment. He was also honest and vulnerable with three of his friends. He needed their, uh, their presence with him. And if that's true, then maybe I shouldn't feel embarrassed about needing other people's care and comfort also in my moments where I feel pressed or crushed. Listen, why he prayed is somewhat of a mystery because we can't fully comprehend God among us experiencing all that involved, is involved with being a human and yet at the same time still remaining to be divine. But why he prayed does open for us 
a bigger understanding of the heart of God and how he can understand and sympathize with us. But the second thing I want to cover with you is, is the last thing that we'll cover, and that's just this idea of why Jesus said no. Because for Jesus to say, let's go to the next village, was saying no to legitimate needs that were there in front of him. And the reason he says that in our story is because he had gotten alone to pray and was redirected. And he tells them that, that I've come for this purpose. We have to go that I might continue to preach. Listen, I've been a part of the crowd that shows up the next morning saying, Jesus, I'm here for my miracle today. And then you look around and go, Jesus, where are you today, though? Because I know that they had their miracle, or I know that they've had that, that thing, and, and I need that thing, or they had miraculous provision show up. I need that now, and I feel sometimes like I'm the person who showed up the next morning going, I'm here and I'm ready, because I've heard and I believe. And then I go, but where are you? What Jesus does here isn't harsh or calloused, but he makes it clear to us that his purpose was not just to heal every person temporarily of every affliction that they dealt with, that ultimately his end goal is to prepare the way that he would walk a pathway towards a cross where he will end all sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all. That that's where he's headed. But still for me, the tension of why Jesus would go and leave real needs unmet is is a little overwhelming. It is something that, that I can kind of choke on. And, and here's what I actually think. I think that he lived out his calling, Jesus did, rather than under what can be the crushing weight of potential. I think that Jesus lived out his calling. He got away, the Father redirected him, and he felt free then to move forward. He lived out his calling rather than always feeling the weight of his potential. It was a couple of years ago that I came across this passage, and for me, I was wiped out and, and, and suffering from depression, and, and just, I, I felt emotionally tapped out, I felt spiritually a bit burned out, and, and then I saw this moment of Jesus departing, and, and there's a part of me that felt like I'm the person in the crowd who showed up the next day all excited, touched me Jesus, and there, there he went. I saw, his, I saw the back of his head from a far distance as he marched his way somewhere else. I'd felt a bit that way. But what I thought about Jesus here was super freeing to me, that Jesus was free to say it's time for me to move forward, which was him saying no to the legitimate needs, was super freeing to me. In fact, as Lindsay and I over the years had considered, what will it look like for us in the future and the love that we have for Jesus and the love we have for people? And then as opportunities would come up about potentially pastoring a church and our quick response of not wanting to do it, this passage is one of the main reasons why that that heart change happened where we became more open to the idea because we saw Jesus say no. You've heard me say before, I grew up in the home of a church planner and a pastor, and, and I saw firsthand the toll that that can take uh, on a family uh, because I think it's really difficult sometimes to maintain healthy boundaries in vocational ministry. And I think it's, it's hard to maintain healthy boundaries in life in general. Uh, Listen, in ministry, though, there's always more to do, and the more to do is really about caring for people and trying to help grow people and reach people, and so that never finishes. And also, you, you work for the Lord is how you feel, and, and it can play games in your head of, of not wanting to ever say no to a need or enough to work when you feel like my work is for Jesus. And, and it can be difficult to say no or enough to other people because ultimately, I love and serve those other people who are making requests or, or saying that they have an expectation of me. I love them, I want to help them, and I feel a sense of personal responsibility to them because their generosity and giving is a part of what allows me and my family to do the things that we do because it's a, a part of what that funds is our paycheck and is our mortgage. And so it can create this messy, a bunch of messy dynamics in uh, a person's heart. And my parents were wonderful and did their absolute best to maintain healthy boundaries. But I saw firsthand what a struggle that was. And that's why Lindsay and I were like, eh, I don't think this is for us. In fact, my mom's uh, here today. Um, she's in town this week and you'll have to meet her afterwards. Um, but this is something she and I sat and talked about on Friday night was just what a challenge it was for her and my dad. And, and some of the things that she said they do different and some of the things that I was thankful to hear uh, and learn from. But uh, this is one of those passages that really changed my heart and opened me up to the idea of stepping into a role like this because Jesus' decision here was freeing for me and I think it's meant to be freeing for you. And this was the thing that I felt like we should slow down and consider. So track with me in doing this. Jesus will later tell a parable called the parable of the talents. 
And when, he's, when he begins that parable, that's probably super familiar to many of you. You can find it in Matthew 25 if you haven't read it before and read it later today. But he begins by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two. And to another, he gave just one. To each according to his own ability. Okay, think about that. He gave to each of them according to his own ability, and immediately he went on his journey. And you know in the story that the one he invested the five to, he went and and, and the one he entrusted the five to, he went and invested it and made five more. The one he, he asked to steward the two went and invested it, made two more. And then there was one who received only one. And what he did with what was given to him and expected to be stewarded is he just buried it in the ground and never did anything with it. Now think about what Jesus teaches us here because the gospel teaches me that what God gives me is himself. That's the gospel. The story that Jesus told here also teaches me that God additionally deposited talents for me to steward. Now talent, it's unfortunate in English, makes us think like gifts and ability and you're like, well, I sing and dance or whatever, like I can juggle. And a talent is actually, it's a measurement or a weight of money. It's a measurement of money not specifically a special ability or talent that you have. Uh, Talent is actually the largest measurement in money that was used in antiquity. It's roughly 75 pounds. It'd be like 400,000 in gold if Jesus deposited or entrusted to them gold. If it's silver, it's still thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of silver. And and so what God gives to them, each of them, is, is an intense value, is an incredibly weighty thing for them to steward. And when you think about it, God is in a sense an equal opportunity lender is part of what the story teaches us and that he entrusts something to everybody. However, he entrusts different amounts to all that he said is based upon their own ability. The moral of the story is that everyone is given a different amount to use, but everyone is expected to do something with what they've been entrusted to steward. One of the things Jesus' parable here teaches me is that God has set a limit to my own gifting and to my capacity and to my abilities and even to the pace that I can run at, that God set a limit for me. And that limit for me might be lower in some areas than it is for you and vice versa. Mine might be higher in some areas than it might be for you, but we have different limits that God has set for us, but God has given to us something to steward and that's the point of it. Listen, most of us deny that truth, though. The idea that I have a a set of limits that God has created me with, most of us deny or even resent that truth, but it doesn't change the fact that that's true about us, that we have limits. And I realize for us to make a statement like that, it's neither politically correct nor is it Disney approved. I mean, politically correct, it's you can't tell someone what they can or can't do because anyone can do anything they put their mind to, right? Disney approved, it's the little mermaid who is looking at that world and saying, I want to be a part of that world, up where they run, up where they walk, up where they stay all day in the sun. I wish I could be a part of that world. And what she does is then she says, fine, I'll just recreate myself and give up my fins in order to get feet so that I can be in that world, forget my limits. Well, that's more what Elsa said, right? About limits. That's exactly what she said. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. I have daughters, you're learning right now. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, let it go. That's how it functions. The idea of what scripture teaches me about me, that in my humanity, the psalmist would say, I am but dust, is offensive to people. And it offends me. I can be whoever I want. I'm not dust, come on. I can do whatever I want to do. I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. No, you have limits. For me to yield to that, it's a kick in the pride. For many of us, the message we grew up hearing is very different from that. That as long as I believe and I work hard enough, then I can create my own reality and it's absolutely limitless. The sky is the limit. But I think it's possible for us to exhaust ourselves trying to live a life that God potentially did not intend for us to try to live because it's possible we're trying to be someone that God did not create us to be because each person has limits. And I would even argue each church has limits. A single church, our church, will not meet every need that is a valid need, not just in the world, but even in our local community. And for each of us as people, each of us as individuals, we have a a, a set of limitations that will keep us from being able to do everything that we'd like and even everything others expect of us in moments. And why would we not want to 
yield to, much less even admit to those limitations? Well, I can't answer for you, but for me, I, I don't want to yield to them or admit to them because I'm arrogant. And I don't want to admit my limits, much less have others see those limits because I'm also insecure. And when others see my limits, I'm afraid that they're going to now think less of me. And so I often compare myself with other people because being different from them often makes me feel that I am less than them because I see that they're able to do some things that I can't do. And I don't want others to feel disappointed in me and and become resentful towards me. So now it's my fear of man that drives me to push past my limits and to fail to yield to them. And in the end, isn't the truth that it's because I lack faith, that God can can and will love and, and care for others and meet those other needs, and he doesn't need me for him to express his love and meet needs. It's not contingent upon just me doing those things. Listen, I do think at times God can take you and I beyond our limitations. Abraham and Sarah, I love how the Bible says it. When God says you're as good as dead, it means you're really old. And yet they had a child. Elijah and Jeremiah, even David with them, they appear to be turned inward and withdrawn from people in moments, dealing with their own depression. And yet God would use them to bring hope and life to others. Moses is the guy that God reaches into the wilderness and says, I'm going to bring you back into your messy past that you ran from. Remember, he killed a guy and buried him in his backyard in a place that you had betrayed and that you're afraid to go back into. And your excuses you have about your inadequacies and your speech, I'm going to bring you back in here and let's take you beyond what you think your limits are. Timothy's the same way. Paul is at the end of his life and he's so aware of, of Timothy's fear that he's a fearful enough person and in his disposition that that it's, it's a powerful enough grip that's on his life that the very last letter Paul will write from prison that we have recorded for us is writing to Timothy to tell him, God didn't give you that spirit of fear. You can go beyond this. You can do this. Listen, but I would guess most of us pretty much exclusively, we'd view our limits just as an obstacle to overcome and not a God given gift to receive or to yield to. Don't get me wrong, I I think it's good for us to be stretched and to grow and to walk by faith, but sometimes I think we have to honor the limits God has placed over us. Think of King David, because sometimes our limits are based on our own ability or lack thereof. Sometimes it's based on our own resources or lack thereof. Sometimes it's based on God's leading or lack thereof. David had the ability and the resources to build God a house, the temple, but God told him it wasn't for him to do, and David yielded to that. And instead, he set his son up for success so that God could still be honored and what needed to happen would still happen. But he knew this is not for me to do because it's outside of what God has asked me to do. Think even of Jesus here. He's fully God, undoubtedly in his deity is limitless. And it becoming completely a man meant that he mysteriously became limited. And when Jesus honored those limitations on that morning, he left a trail of disappointed people in his wake. When Jesus said, let's go, he was saying no to real people and real needs. Jesus didn't live under the the pressure of potential. He simply lived in the freedom of his calling. I think there's a difference. I'm a parent with three young kids. I will, uh, for their whole lives, encourage them about the potential I see in their lives. However, I'm going to try to walk the fine line of encouraging them that I believe in you, I believe that you can do this because God can help you to do this, but also not pushing them so hard, always putting their potential over their head to where all it feels like is a crushing weight on top of them. Because sometimes even as an adult, it can feel that way. Our potential can, or the potential other people see in us. Jesus had the potential to do a lot more, and yet he lived out calling instead of under the weight of potential. He could have done more, and people were disappointed that he didn't do more in moments, but he did exactly what the Father had instructed him to do. Listen, saying no is not often considered a very godly act. Think about it. On the contrary, it's often viewed as selfish or or feels selfish when we say no to something. But Jesus recognized and yielded to the way that the Father directed him, and even his God-given limits. Jesus' highest priority, we could say it this way, was not avoiding conflict or confrontation. It was simply doing the will of the Father. For me, 
those lines get blurred sometimes about what is the, the main thrust? What am I really shooting for? What's a main goal in my life? Is it about avoiding conflict and confrontation or someone's disappointment? Or is it about me just being who God's called me to do and listening to the Father and following his leading? Hear me on this. Opportunity does not equate to responsibility. Not even for Jesus. One author said it this way. Jesus did not go in person to meet the needs of everyone in Europe, Africa, Asia, or the Americas, yet he prayed at the end of his life, I have completed the work you gave me to do. He lived, I think, out his calling, not necessarily under the weight of his potential. Listen, real quick, I'll land the plane because I'm pretty much out of time. When it comes to your limits, I just encourage you to do something. I'd encourage you to find yours. Like, what are those? What's that look like for my life? Because it looks different for all of us. One was entrusted with five and then with two and then with one, each according to their ability. There's a book I read a couple of years years ago called Zeal Without Burnout. And the author, he said this. He said, when God signed you, he knew for his team, he knew he was not signing another God. God is under no illusions about who he's getting on his team when he signed you. And I would argue that you and I, we have to fight the illusion also of what God signed. Listen, I believe that my limits and yours can be stretched and they, they can grow. That there's, we're in a lifelong journey of growing and God developing us for sure. And I think that some limits, they change and shift in seasons of your life. Uh, for me, when I was a single guy, my, the pace that I could run at and the amount of nights that I could be busy doing things was very different than once I got married. But for me, I was working at a church when I got married and I went to my uh, overseer at that point and I said, you know, now that I'm married, I was six nights a week here at the church for different ministry things. This is too much for me and my wife now because things are different for us and so we need to slow down. And the, the overseer over me, he responded and said, you know, for my wife and I, we're six nights a week. As long as you have date night, one night a week, I don't want to hear about it as long as you have date night. And so I, with all sorts of grace and patience, responded and said, well, I'm not you. Lindsay's not your wife, and we don't want your marriage. And so I don't think that this is a fit for me. Perfect. But hey, for some of you, as a single person, you could kill it at 70 hours a week at work. But now the only thing you kill is you kill your family and your spouse by running at that pace because you and I, we need to learn to shift some of those things. And I think that our, if you're married, our spouse's voice has to be as loud as any other voice that's involved in these sorts of discussions about limits and pace because, <laughs> because we are knuckleheads and it's not just us guys. It can, be, uh, it can be men and women who can just power through things and go, oh, I can handle this, but it's not just a question of if I can handle this. It's, Lindsay, is this pace good for you? And then it's, I've got three kids It's me looking at them and going, what's best for them as well? And where do we need to slow down? Or where do we adjust this pace? Or or for some of you, you're you're out of those stages of life. And so now it's you uh, at at, at a new season in your life, in a further chapter than my own, you looking at your life and reassessing what's my pace and what what should this be right now? I do think that there are some limits that are pretty stationary. But I have to ask good questions. I have to ask myself, can I do this? Or, or can I make it? Will this work? But I need to add to that discussion. Is this sustainable? Like, how long can I run at this pace? Is this worth it to me or to us? Am I sacrificing too much to make this work? And are we as a family, are we healthy because of this choice? Am I using what God has given me or what I wish that God had given me? Am I motivated by the call of God in my life or am I driven by guilt or by internal pressure about not wanting to disappoint someone else? Am I doing this because my parents or someone else expect me to do it, or because I believe that the Father has called me to do this? Is this a pace that I can manage and enjoy, or what can I adjust so that I, I'm making sure I'm not losing, I'm not losing sight of the, the things that I value most in life and in eternity? I think we need to find our limits, but I think we need to also learn to just appreciate them. It's a freeing moment when you realize and express, I can't do that, or at least not at that pace. And when we admit, it's a myth that I can be anything that I desire. I will never be a a center in the NBA. Uh, I I will also not ever be a forward in the WNBA, and it's not just because I'm not a woman, it's because I'm not a good basketball player at all. But I also know I'd never make a good CEO. I also know I'd make a terrible CPA. 
I know that I would not work well completely isolated from people because people are so good for me in the way that God has wired me. I know that I would not do well in a role where my interaction with people is, is super brief in short windows of time because the way God's made me is to sit with people. I know that Lindsay and I would never pioneer a new work, but a situation like this with wonderful people and a foundation in place that this more fit the way that God had wired us. I know that I am not made to be a lone ranger leader where everyone looks my way to make all of the decision that I'm better suited to work with a team of people who share the same heart and vision and can work together as a team of elders. And that's what we're doing. I know that I need time to read and study and process, that I can't just get up and wing it, that, that you would hate it just as much as I would if I tried. I know that I have to block out time in my schedule then to, to fight against that. But listen, this church should not be limited by my limits, but you as a person, a part of this church, you need to be willing to grant me permission to live within my limits, which you did even just last week. When my family was sick and I laid low and stayed home to help take care of them, you did that. And then you as a person that attends this church, you should be willing to jump in and shift the limits of what this church can do by you using your unique gifts. I might be a teacher or an encourager or a shepherd, but we need organizers with gifts of administration and helps and hospitality and mercy and comfort and care. And, and, and we need people to bring the fun and creativity because as you've already learned very quickly, that's not Trevor's strong suit. But, but there's room for you to be the party in the box kind of person. I think that for us, we need to find our limits, appreciate them, and then steward them. That's the, that's the real point of what Jesus taught, is to use the, the talents that the master has entrusted to you, whatever those are, however you can, use what he's entrusted to you for his glory and the enrichment of others around you. And listen, stewarding my limits sometimes means that I have to be okay with not being everything someone else wants me to be, or even may think that, that they need me to be even if that leaves someone disappointed like it did these people in Jesus' life, even if it, it means I'm slapped at times with the label of being selfish for safeguarding some things, or even if it means saying no for what they want me to be or think that I should do. Remember, even Jesus disappointed people, feeling, left them feeling like he could have done more, but he lived out his calling rather than under the crushing weight of his potential. And it's possible, and I want to say this super respectfully, it's possible that in some stages of life, we need to become better at saying no and slowing down to honor God and honor the family God's entrusted to us. But it's also possible that in other stages and seasons that we ought to be willing to say yes more than we do. One day, I, I assume that I, one day I'll get to the point where I can retire from an occupation and career, but I will never retire from a calling or stewardship of the gifts that God has entrusted to me. And that's true for every person who follows Jesus. You will potentially retire from your vocation. You will never retire from the opportunity to steward what God has entrusted to you. And for many, I think they, they fight to get to a point in life where they're free from responsibility of everything because then they can slow down. And you might need that from your occupation but when it comes to stewardship of what God has entrusted to you, don't ever let off the gas. You keep moving forward and begin to say, yes, I would challenge you even more so. Steward what God has given you. Whatever God has called you to do, it has great value. Don't discount it or compare it to other people because that never, ever works out well for any of us.